0: Good morning. I'm all in. Are you all in? You know, I timed that just right, Clinton. You started, behold, he comes as I was walking down the aisle. It's totally an accident. I want to remind you of a couple of things coming up. Two of the most fun weeks of the year here at Oldham Lane are right around the corner. We have our Shine Girls Camp in July, where we teach our young ladies how to serve the Lord and various ways in his church and his kingdom, so you'll want to make plans for that. If you're a young lady, 7th grade to 12th grade, you'll want to think about that and sign up. And then we have our preacher training camp, June 5th through the 10th, for Christian young men ages 14 to 18. Spend a week here at Oldham Lane, learn the art of preaching and leadership. It's fun, it's also work, and I think those who have attended will tell you that it is worth it. So hopefully you'll be making plans for that. There are forms out on the table, or you can come see me and I can give you any other information. So if you watch television for any length of time, you have noticed that there are more than a few ads for medicines. Drug companies are paying billions upon billions of dollars to advertise, to capture your attention, to tell you that their drug is the magical elixir that you need to cure whatever is ailing you. You know what I'm talking about. Upexin, Humira, Eloquist, Lyrica. And with these ads comes the annoying warnings. And if you've noticed, they spend more time on the warning than they do the product itself, which is interesting, right? they spend as much time or more on the warning than they do the benefit. You know, I was watching one the other day and they were talking about a drug that helps cure insomnia, but it could also cause suicidal thoughts. You're thinking, okay, well, it may cure my insomnia, I may be able to sleep, but it also may kill me in the process. You know, the world markets all sorts of remedies for whatever is alienated. The medicine of prosperity, the medicine of notoriety, The medicine of security. But here's the problem with what the world markets. It doesn't give you a warning. Only the benefit, the perceived benefit. There's no warning. We have a warning as the church, but it doesn't come from the world. It comes through the Word. And I want you to look with me at what is written in Luke chapter 18. Starting in verse 18, it says, A ruler questioned him, Jesus, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your mother and father. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad because he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, How hard is it for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, The things that are impossible with people are possible with God. We've talked about the rich young ruler a lot especially over the last few weeks. He comes and he asks the most important question anyone could ever ask. What do I have to do to go to heaven? Now it seems as though that he thinks there's a checklist item and maybe he's missed a box. And so Jesus tells him, you know the commandments. And he says, yes, and I have kept those from my youth up. And so Jesus looks at him and says, okay, but there's one thing. Just one thing you lack. But it was a big thing. Go and sell off everything you own, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Well, he doesn't like that answer. He thought that it might be just some box he missed, but obviously this is a life-changing kind of decision, and he walks away sad because he owned a lot of stuff. And this prompts Jesus to turn to his disciples and say, look, it's impossible for a rich man to get to heaven. At least on his own, it's like a camel trying to pass through the eye of a needle. It can't be done, at least not by yourself. Now... I read this story about this rich young ruler, and I think to myself, this guy was rich, obviously. He was among the wealthiest of the most wealthy during his time, and yet he didn't have A.C. He couldn't sleep on a sleep number bed. He couldn't buy penicillin. He had to walk everywhere he went. If this guy is rich, well, then what am I? Okay, so you move from Luke chapter 18, and we meet another rich man in Luke chapter 19. And by way of contrast to the rich young ruler, we have this man by the name of Zacchaeus. Notice what it says. Chapter 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through, and there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up in a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. When they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus Stopped and said to the Lord, "Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded any one of anything, I will give back four times as much." And Jesus said to him, "Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost." So Zacchaeus stands in direct contrast to the rich young ruler. Zacchaeus experienced the impossible—a rich man. Attaining salvation. That was impossible, at least on your own. How did he attain it? By listening to the Lord, by drawing near to Him. He found true treasure in Jesus Christ. The rich man, the rich young ruler, allowed his wealth to get in the way of his discipleship. He walked away sad, and Zacchaeus says, Uh uh-uh, uh, that's not happened to me. I'm not doing that. If I've defrauded anyone, I'll give back four times what I took. He was willing to give up half, he was willing to do whatever in order to follow Jesus. And the difference between the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus is that one saw the value in being needy. Money does some strange things to people, doesn't it? Let's face it, it does some strange things to us. It can cause one to lie, to steal, to cheat. A love for money shields us from a full-on commitment to discipleship. We bow down to this idol of money. We put our full faith and trust in God. And this God of money, we pay homage to the almighty dollar rather than the almighty God. And like the rich young ruler, we find ourselves in a position where we're conflicted. We want to be close to God, but we don't want to give up anything to do it. We find ourselves saddened and devastated when confronted with the decision of turning loose of our money and stuff. But perhaps the greatest threat that a love of money poses to us and to our hearts is that we no longer see ourselves as needy. And for all of us, there is a need to be needy. Now, I want you to look with me at a particular letter written to a particular church in Asia Minor. So this is the the church in Laodicea, and notice what is written to them. These are the words of Jesus that John recorded. It says... To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne, and I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is America. Isn't it? I mean, this very same letter could be written to us as Americans. It describes us perfectly, which is scary because it's not a kind letter. It's an indictment on who these people were and where their affections lie. Now, some things you need to know about Laodicea. It was one of the wealthiest commercial cities of its time. And it boasted three different types of hubs for for industry. It was a financial hub. Laodicea was the Wall Street of its day and time. It was a fashion hub. It boasted this this wool that it would sell at the marketplace, and it was highly coveted wool. It was also a hub for the pharmaceutical industry. They had this Phrygian eye salve that people would travel from all over to receive and to anoint their eyes with so that they could see better. And so Laodicea was was famous in a lot of different ways, self-sufficient, independent, proud, like America— It was also the place where many people would come to to sit in these restorative spas. You ever been to Hot Springs, Arkansas? And You know I'm from Arkansas, you know, the Holy Land. And Hot Springs, beautiful area, but it's where they have these natural occurring springs. Come up out of the ground, they're heated, and people believe that they have restorative power, so they'll come and sit in. Laodicea was the hot springs of its day and time as well. Appearances would suggest that Laodicea had it all together. Again, self-sufficient, proud, independent, just like Americans many times. And Jesus addresses this church. He gets into what he wants to say, but before he does so, he wants them to know who's doing the talking, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. So Jesus gives his resume. He establishes his credibility before he tells them what he really wants to say he says, this is your warning. There's a cure, there's a remedy here. I've got got the medicine that you need, but before you take the medicine, understand here is your warning. And he says, I'm going to set the record straight. The amen is speaking, and the amen simply means the exclamation point. Jesus is talking, so you better listen up. The world's talking too, and they get in your ear, but you need to push the world out, and you need to listen to the only one that truly matters, because anything that Jesus says, you can take to the bank. The amen is speaking, therefore you better listen up. And here's the message, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, to understand the words that Jesus is speaking here, you have to put yourself in the audience. And Laodicea was strategically located between the Hierapolis and Colossae. And the Hierapolis is where you had these restorative hot springs. And Colossae is where you had these mountain streams that were obviously cold and the water, the cold water would flow down and it would hit the warm water from the springs and the water would become lukewarm. And so the people listening at this day and time, they would have connected the dots to what Jesus is saying perfectly. Their spiritual condition represented what you see around them. The lukewarmness. Lukewarm is defined as having or showing little ardor or zeal, indifferent, half-hearted, lacking conviction or enthusiasm. In other words, the Laodiceans suffered from spiritual complacency or staleness. They had lost their fervor, their fire, their passion, And Jesus makes it clear his distaste for their indifference when he says, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the Greek here is interesting. The Greek word for spit here is emeo. It's where we get our English word, emetic. Anyone know what an emetic is used for? To make you vomit. Over the years, emetics have been used to make someone vomit, to Dispel of anything toxic that a person may have ingested. You know what one of the major emetics was many centuries ago? Lukewarm water. So if you ingested something toxic in order to make you throw up and get it from your body, they would make you drink lukewarm water. So understand what Jesus is saying here in a very literal sense. He is telling the Christians in Laodicea, You make me want to throw up. You make me sick. You make me want to vomit, which is scary because. It drives the point home that we can be a church, that we can be Christians that actually make Jesus sick. He says, I wish you were hot or cold. I wish you were at least one or the other. I mean, pick one, quit lingering in limbo, quit living in borderland here, quit straddling the fence. Don't default to indifference, pick a side. Don't get accustomed to apathy. You know, folks, you can can go to your place of work and as an employee, you can do exactly what the job requires. Nothing more, nothing less. You can probably keep, keep your job. As a student, you can make straight C's and be considered average. As a, a spouse, as a husband or a wife, you can even probably treat your spouse like dirt or less than ideal and be married for many, many years. You can do what's expected or maybe even a little less than what's expected and continue with status quo, but is that, what, is that the best mode of operation? I mean, it, when it comes to our spiritual lives, absolutely not. When it comes to discipleship, mediocrity is not the goal. You can aim for mediocrity, you can aim for status quo, and you'll hit it. You can set the bar low, but nowhere in Scripture do you find God being okay with okay. Never. Over and over again, you see him demanding our best. My concern is that there are far too many Christians who are completely satisfied with being lukewarm. My concern is that there are too many Christians who have enough God in their lives. They're rich, but they're poor. They're wretched. They're miserable. They're naked. They can't see. They're blind. And they're okay with it. They're lukewarm and loving it. That's my concern that we don't have people that are praying, Lord, give me this day my daily bread. No, the prayer is more like, give me this day my yearly bread. I want my retirement bread. We don't need anything from God because we have all that we could ever want or need. Maybe, maybe we say, well, I could, I could use more money. I don't need more God. I could use more money. I don't have as much money as I'd like. I don't need God. I'd like to have more stuff. I don't have everything I want, but I've got enough God. Too many have enough God in their lives because they created heaven right here on earth. Why do I need God? I have everything. And so we're not needy. And there is value in being needy. We have to understand the need for neediness. That was the attitude of the Laodicean Christians. They weren't needy. They had enough God. They were rich, and therefore they didn't need God, and therefore they were poor, they were blind, they were naked, they were wretched, they were miserable. And the worst part of it all is verse 17. And you do not know. That's the worst part of all of it. That you're blind, you're naked, you're miserable, you're wretched, and all those things, and you don't even know it. How terrible is it to be blind and naked and wretched and miserable and not even know it? But what's even worse is to know it and be okay with it. What's worse than being spiritually bankrupt? I'll tell you what's worse. Being numb to it. So, Jesus steps in. He does an audit on this church in Laodicea. He tells them that none of what they think of themselves is accurate. That everything that they think about themselves, that they boast in, is wrong. And here's his solution. Buy gold from me so that you can be eternally rich. Get your clothing from me. In other words, put on these white garments that I'm going to give you to make yourself pure. Apply my salve to your eyes so that you can actually see what needs to be seen. So Jesus gives the warning and he gives the medicine. He says, I'm not done with you. I'm going to discipline you, but it's for your own good. Look at it again. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and sit down with, uh, and dine with him, and, and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. My grandfather used to smoke non-filtered Pall Mall cigarettes like a pack a day. We lived close to uh, an Air Force base. Air Force base is not there anymore, but my, father, my grandfather, being a veteran, would go once a month to the commissary and buy all his groceries, and including carton after carton of cigarettes. Non-filter, Pall Mall cigarettes. Because he had so many in his glove box, I thought he won't notice one being gone. He won't notice one pack. So I took a pack from one of the cartons, I took out one of the cigarettes, non-filter Paul Mall cigarettes, and I began smoking it. I got halfway through, about gagged, probably the best thing that could have happened to me. Try it. I steered clear of them from that point forward. My grandfather did find out, and he scolded me pretty harshly. And I remember as he was scolding me, one of the first things I thought was, how dare you? How dare you get on to me for smoking when you smoke like a freight train, right? How in the world can you get on to me? But as I've grown older, I understand now what he was doing. He didn't want me to follow in his footsteps. He didn't want me to get addicted like he was. Even though he knew that it was a bad habit, he wanted me to avoid that habit. And every one of you who have children, grandchildren perhaps, know what I'm talking about. I'm speaking your language. You may not want to discipline your child. You may not enjoy it. But you do it because you love them. Even when they become teenagers and they tell you they hate you, you do it anyway because you know that it's for their own good. And that it's going to benefit them in the long run. It's hard for me to fathom. That the same Jesus who said, you make me want to vomit, also said, I love you. Do you notice that? The same Jesus that said, I want to spit you out of my mouth says, I love you. But that's precisely how our Lord operates. He makes a very personal appeal to the Christians in Laodicea. And it's amazing that if you read the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, you see that Laodicea was the worst, without a doubt. Yet the worst church gets the best invitation. I love that. And it just proves what we've talked about over and over again is that the Bible is a book of failures. It's also a book about redemption. And so Jesus is going to discipline. He is going to reprove these folks. He's got the medicine, but first he gives them the warning. Jesus is a relational being, and he wants these people in heaven. Just as he wants me and you there as well. He wants to be with us. And when you're with Jesus, when you have a relationship with him, when you truly sell out, when you truly go all in, you don't care about anything else. When you treasure the relationship above all else, your earthly riches and temporary comfort will not be the primary pursuit in life. To sit down at the Lord with the Lord at his table is your only concern. When you truly get that, when you truly grasp that, your life will take on a different meaning and be lived in a different direction. You won't be lukewarm. You won't be lukewarm and loving it. Instead, you will be livid about being lukewarm. Did you notice that Jesus was standing at the door of the Laodicea church? Did you notice that? What's the implication of that? Well, that they were having worship and he wasn't invited. They're having church and Jesus isn't even there. They're worshiping and he wasn't even invited. And you notice that he, he stands outside and he knocks. He doesn't force himself in. He doesn't turn the knob even or lift the latch. He just stands outside waiting for somebody to let him in. Sadly, nobody does. Here's the deal, folks. My prayer is... That if you're lukewarm, you will invite Jesus in. That is my prayer. There may be some of you sitting here this morning that are lukewarm. Some of you may be lukewarm and okay with that. And that's a thought that disturbs me. There is a thought that keeps me up at night. And the thought is this. That someone at the Oldham Lane Church of Christ might not make it to heaven. That thought concerns me it bothers me like nothing else that there may be somebody in our auditorium right here this morning even that's not going to make it to heaven because they're treating this like a checklist because they're settling for mediocrity because they've set the bar too low they're lukewarm and loving it or they're spiritually bankrupt and they're numb to it and you do not know that's my fear and folks if that describes you let me say this Don't do anything else until you've corrected it. Nothing. Don't go to work. Don't go to school. Don't go to sleep. Don't eat. Don't get a drink. Don't do anything until you've done everything possible to settle God's stomach. Be quiet. You hear that? Can y'all hear that? Jesus is knocking.